Good morning. This Today we get the privilege, and I do mean privilege, of opening God's Word. And not only do we get the privilege of opening God's Word, but we get to go to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3. How many of you read it this week? How many of you thought, if I make it to the end, it's going to be amazing? I did, I will tell you. One commentator called it the colorless memorandum of assignments. A bunch of names you can't pronounce, doing a bunch of things we don't understand. And you say, well, pastor, couldn't we have just skipped that one and gone on to chapter 4 where it gets a little more exciting? But I want to tell you, inside chapter 3 are some amazing truths that I believe we can, that we can pull out. So, so let's just by way of a little bit of review, remember where we are. Remember that in 586, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire invaded Jerusalem and they destroyed the city. In our video, it said the walls were in ruin. The city was destroyed. But let me tell you, worse than being destroyed as a city and worse than being destroyed, having destroyed walls was they had a busted morale. They were no longer feeling like, We're God's chosen people. They did not feel like they could overcome, that they could conquer, that they could take it. If you want to defeat a people, let the air out of the bag. That is what will happen. They begin to think, oh no, I can't do this. I don't have my confidence. You know, I don't have my swagger, if you will. And that's where they were. Their houses were destroyed, but more than that, they were. Well, About 100 years later, some other time later, 400 years later, um, the king of Cyrene said, you know what, y'all can go back. And Nehemiah's brother went back. And when Nehemiah's brother came back, Nehemiah said, hey, tell me, how's it going in Jerusalem? And he said, oh, brother, let me tell you, it is bad. But it's not just bad, it's worse than bad. And this man named Nehemiah, set apart by God before the foundations of the world, began to hear the story of what was going on around him. And the scripture says, if we now, by way of review, if you're looking at your outline, the scripture says in chapter 1 that he became concerned. And I'd ask you this morning, are you concerned about the condition of the people? Are you concerned when you need, read the news report that says that in our community yesterday, two, two teenagers were murdered? Are you concerned when you pick up the, hear the news or ride around and you see people that are hurting? Are you concerned when we share a prayer report in our church that says somebody got bad news today? You see, Nehemiah, because he was in tune with God, He loved God. Nehemiah had the energy and the strength to love people no matter where they were in that moment. He was concerned for the people. He had a conviction that God's character was right and good. He confessed his sins and the sins of his father. He confessed his confidence in God's... You got to go. There's a little bug flying there. Um, his confidence in God's promises, but then this is what he did. He committed to be a part of the solution. 
in chapter 2 after he went for four months before God and he wept and prayed and he waited and prayed and he had made the commitment to do and to be involved. In chapter 2, he began to say, this is what I can do. And he began to wait on the Lord. He began to trust the Lord. He began and continued to pray for the people. He started planning, how can I get there? He started thinking about when would be the right moment to talk to the king. And he began to testify of God's goodness. And eventually the king said, you know what, Nehemiah, you can go to Jerusalem. How long will you be there? And he said, I don't know, but I think it'll take me this long. And the king said, go. And the king not only said, you can go. He said, but let me write some letters for you so that you'll pass safely and you won't be attacked and you won't be thrown in jail. And he wrote him the letters. And Nehemiah got to Jerusalem. And you would think he would be so excited that he would immediately start working. But it says, no, he rested for three days. And after he rested for three days, it says on a moonlit night, he went out and he assessed the land. He saw all the things firsthand that needed to be done and all the things that would take place. And after he rested and after he assessed, it says that he began to recruit people to join him. People to get involved. And he inspired them. And then when the opposition began to pop up, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's nothing worse than to be really pumped up and you say, hey, guess what? This is what we can do. And people go, oh, you can't do that. You know what I'm talking about? Party poopers. Oh, that'll just like make me want to go, oh, I can't stand that. But here he is. And he handled the opposition. That really leads us to chapter 3 and this endless list of things. So let's begin with some observations about chapter 3. Nehemiah was a gifted administrator and organizer. Don't ever underestimate the gift of administration. Don't ever underestimate the gift of organization. Those people that do those things behind the scenes, like make this PowerPoint. Mash that button so that it's on the right slide at the right time. Get me still long enough to make an outline because I'd rather do anything else than sit down and make an outline. Y'all need to know that. But there are people that are working behind the scenes who have the gift of organization, have the gift of administration. Nehemiah had that because, you see, if Nehemiah had been the one that just runs in there and says, I'll do it, I'm going to take care of it, it wouldn't have gotten done because it was bigger than a one-man job. Yesterday, we had a group of men that went over to Miss Phyllis Walker's house. And they tackled building her a wheelchair ramp. You say, well, is that a big deal? Yes, if you're stuck in a wheelchair and you can't get out your front door, a wheelchair ramp becomes a precious, precious commodity. And one of the men that were with them said, you know, it really does help when you got that person that knows what they're doing. Man, I could see Miss Phyllis needs a wheelchair ramp. But man, when you've got people that really know how to build a wheelchair ramp, All of a sudden, the daunting becomes nothing. People working. An amazing thing to see. Nehemiah had this gift of administration. Nehemiah used that gift of administration to mobilize 44 different groups of people to rebuild the walls. Man, 44 different groups. 30 times in the book, in the chapter 3 in the book of Nehemiah, it says it was next to him or next to them. And you say, is that significant? Absolutely it's significant because next to them means that 
they weren't just in the room doing a job. No, it meant that they were in the room side by side working on that job together. Leadership, listen to me, Mount Zion leadership. It's not how much can I do that we want to put a check mark by. We want to put the check mark by how many people joined me in doing it. The greater success is not that if I can drive a nail, but if I can get 10 people driving nails, now we're doing ministry. Many members, one body, coming together to accomplish all that we can for the glory and honor of God. That's really the principle of chapter 3. Every member participating to accomplish the goal. And our goal is to make, mark, and mature disciples. So how did Nehemiah do that? I mean, surely he didn't walk out there and, boy, look at that big old pile of garbage. Somebody ought to pick it up. No, I'm going to Dairy Queen. I don't want to join that. Nehemiah said, look, this work, this work that we're about to undertake, this work that's so big we don't even know what to do, this work that has had you handicapped and crippled for so long, This work is for the worship and the glory and honor of God. You see, because Nehemiah was telling them, look, it's not just your house that's in disrepair. But it's the city of God. It's the temple that's in disrepair. And every time somebody drives by, And stops in Jerusalem for the day. They're going. Boy I don't think I want to follow their God. He can't even keep his city intact. What's he going to do for me? And you see as people of God. We're going to go through challenging times. We're going to face times that are overwhelming. There are going to be moments that we don't know what to do. And we don't need to act like life is, oh, it's grand today. Don't worry about me. No, no, no. We need to be very real with people. Yes, I'm in a struggle. Yes, I'm hurting. Yes, I'm walking through this. But God is able and God is enough and I will trust him. And when he leads me, I will follow. And when he tells me what to do, I will go with him. Because listen to me, Satan's greatest tool is discouragement of the church. We can't do this. We can't accomplish this. I met with, when I met with your dad this week, by the way, a faithful church planner, a man that has spent a lifetime leading people. He said that one of the things that he most proud of in the the real sense of the word, the good sense of the word, was that he planted a church that 98% of the church members financially supported that church. 98%. 9.8 out of 10 were financially tithing to accomplish that. And he said that when they got ready and when the church got to a place that it could actually purchase something, they had the money because they had been good stewards. All for the glory and honor and the worship of God. To create a place that this community who is, is obviously hurting this community that has needs, this community that needs and wants to know God, maybe even if they don't know it, so that when they drive by here, they are compelled to come in so that the house may be full. Guys, what part are you playing in this process? 
Nehemiah rallied the people. Which leads us really to the second shift in this message, if you will, out of chapter 3 past the review. It's six principles that will help us come, become better together. So let's look at the first principle. The first principle that we would find is that leaders must set the example. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priest, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, chapter 2 says. God wants his leaders to set the example. So guess what? If you're a leader of a group, and your group needs to start at 9.30, and you get there at 9.45 or 9.50, you are not setting the example. The leader ought to be the first one there, so that when the person walks through the door, you are greeting the people that come. It's hard to say this is a priority when it's not a priority. It's hard to say, we need to do this as a team, when every time you're supposed to call a team, you just say, never mind, I've got it. Leaders set the example. Where did And who led the way? It was the priest. It was the, the men who had the job of leading the people to worship God. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that's where they started, because what they were declaring was, God is first. He's the one that we're going to follow. He's the one that we're going to put in our hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if we're going to build this city, we're going to build it on the foundation of the glory and the worship and the power of God. Because it doesn't matter how many times we step in and provide relief. If we don't provide the foundation, it's always going to crumble right after the next storm. It says that they rebuilt the sheep gate. Why? Because that was the gate the closest to the temple that provided the access. Why did it get the name sheep gate? Because that's where they sent all the sheep through who were going to be sacrificed. It was for the forgiveness of sin. So yes, we want to rebuild in our city. It's good to go build a park. But let's build up a place of worship. Where families can walk in the door and we love them enough to tell them that no matter where you are, God is enough. But we also love them enough to say the answer is in Him. It says that after they built that, they stopped and had a moment of worship. They dedicated it. That meant that they paused. They called time out. And they said, God, you are it. You're why we're, we are rebuilding this city. When we get tired, we're going to keep on. When the opposition comes, we're going to see we'll work with one hand and hold a sword with the other. But nothing will deter us from rebuilding this wall and rebuilding this city so that the name and the glory of God will be famous again. Who knew you could get so much out of a list of names? 
But leaders need to set the example. Life group leaders, tonight at 5 o'clock, there is a Jesus on Leadership class. If you lead a life group, be here at 5 o'clock. It's where you're learning and you're studying and you're talking about how we can lead people in life and ministry. And we're looking at the greatest leader there was, Jesus. Nehemiah. says that Eliashib began it but if you flipped over and you can make a note and read it later if you flipped over to Nehemiah 13 verses 4 through 9 you would find out that the one who began well did not end well you see it's not enough to be a greyhound out of the blocks consistent leadership over the long haul, not only starting, but letting those you are leading see you consistently doing it. Miss Linda, we were talking this morning, and we were talking about consistency. And you've been a member here since 1980, and you started working in children's ministry that year, and at the church you were at before then. So for 40 plus years, you have consistently volunteered and led. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's not what you can start, it's what you can finish. It's not what you can get out of the blocks, it's where you can run across the tape. I had an aunt that was convinced as a, when I was a kid that I would love to put... You remember those model cars that came in boxes and they had like 10 million pieces and you had to tear them off that little piece of plastic? She was convinced that I would love to do that. So much so that every single Christmas she gave me a different car. Let me tell you about ADHD and putting a model together. First of all, you don't want to sit there and tear those little things off because you want to do it so fast you break them. Then if you do successfully get them torn off, you walk out of the room and set them down somewhere else and you don't even remember. And then you got that little tube of glue. Oh, it went everywhere. I never finished a model. Not even one time. I remember one year my mom said, it's time to clean out your closet. What do you want to get rid of first? Yes. All those unfinished models. You see, unfortunately, we get there sometimes in the church. We'll come to church, we'll get an idea, we get excited, and we say, Pastor, I know this is what God's calling me to do. Would you let me start? And then we don't count the cost of what it means to start because now we've got to finish. And then we forget that when we actually start something that there's going to be people involved. And people don't always do what you want them to do. And so you show up some weeks and you're there by yourself and you go, well, this must not be what God wanted me to do because nobody's here. No, you get yourself up and you work harder because if God said do it, God will complete what he started. And we 
need to be involved. We need to be in it. And if God said do it, no. Wait, just keep going. Just keep going. Do not grow weary in doing good is what the Scripture says. But keep on. The second thing we see is not only leaders must set the example, but God uses people from all walks of life. Look at verse 8. Uzazel. You say, how did I know that? I have this amazing app on my phone that if you type it in and hit play, it tells you. Yeah, it's awesome. If you don't have it, I'll tell you about it after church. Uzel, son of Hera, Haya. I really need my phone up here to hit play. One of the perfume makers made repairs next to that. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. You see that thing yesterday? I would venture to say that half of the people that showed up to build the ramp may could have gotten a ramp built if they're long enough, but they weren't ramp makers. You see what I'm getting at? But ramp makers next to somebody who's not a ramp maker can accomplish an amazing task very quickly. God uses people. You say, well, surely God doesn't want me to do this because I'm not that. No. What God says is, you make yourself available to me. When I give you a task, when I give you a call, when I put you on mission, you join me and I will equip you. I will give you everything you need to finish the job. And we can trust God through it. And we begin and we're faithful and we set the example and other people come around us. And that goldsmith and that perfume maker, it says that they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Don't come to God with your list of what you can't do. Come to God with your list of, I'm totally available. I'll tell you another danger. Is don't come to God with comparison. And say, well, Lord, Steve would be better at that than I am. Because. Or Miss Ann could do that better than I could. Because. No. Lord, I'm available to you. And this doesn't make sense. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to be available to you. And God, you may only be using me as the conduit to get somebody else there. And if that's okay, that's a good thing. I'll trust you. God wants leaders to set the example. God wants us to understand that he will use people from all walks of life. 
Another principle we see, though, is not everyone's going to join the work. Go back to verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. So many times it's easy to say, well, I'm not going to do that because so-and-so didn't do that. And if they're not going to do it, then why should I be the one that does it all? But you see, when you're doing your work for the glory and the worship of God, now all of a sudden you can say, I'm there. And you can count on me. And if nobody else shows up, God, I'm, I'm there. I'm faithful. I'll be the one. It says, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. There's a hint, if you look at the original language, that that was a pride issue. It's beneath me to do this or do that. That's for somebody else to do. I'm not going to pick up trash. I'm not going to clean windows. I'm not going to make phone calls. Or I'm not going to be the one that does this. No, God opposes the proud, but he gives abundant grace to the humble. Could we? get to a place today where we could understand what Nehemiah was communicating he never said the work would not be hard he never said that the work um, would not be dirty he said it's going to be hard work there will be opposition he said there are going to be people that won't join us he said but what I'm asking you to do is to join me in rebuilding this wall I'm asking you to join me so that There's glory and honor and worship to the name of God. And what we're facing in the world today, God is like the Marines Corps. He's looking for a few good men and a few good women who will join and say, no matter what goes on, No matter what opposition, I am there. Not everyone will join. God expects the leaders to set the example. God uses people from all walks of life. Look at number four. Some will do more work. Go to verse 27. Next to them, the men of Tekoa. Now, we just talked about the men of Tekoa, right? Said they had done their job. They did not feel like they were done until the wall was built. They were assigned a section. They were said, hey, men of Tekoa, you build from here to here. And really what Nehemiah was truly saying to them was, if you'll build from here to here, you've done your part. You won't have anything else to do. You can release yourself. 
But when the men of Tekoa finished their job and they looked and realized there was more to be done, they didn't pack up, they stuck around. Let me put that in modern day terms. We've got the fall festival next Monday night, the 31st. Next Sunday, from 2 to 4, we're going to have a time where we get to work for the glory and the worship of God. Where we're going to be able to get the tables ready. We're going to be able to set some things by the door so that on Monday, we don't have to do it all. I invite every one of you to come and be a part of that. Because if God allows everything, FYI, um, if God allows everything that we want to do, we're going to have pine straw here. Not only are we going to set up tables, but we're going to put out some pine straw around the ark where people are going to be. So that it looks good and right. We'll walk through the buildings and make sure that, that everything from the corners to the top of the ceiling is ready. To receive people. And we'll do that from 2 to 4. At 5 o'clock. We're going to prayer walk. And have invitations to hand out to people. Where we go into the communities. Go to the places that people gather. Those will be assigned and you'll know where to go. But that's next Sunday from 2 to 5. Well. And you say, some will do more work, bring it home to me. Well, if I show up on Sunday and I'm here for the fall festival and when the fall festival's over and I look around and there's things that need to be cleaned up and things to be put up, I'll say, but it's not my job because I was here yesterday? No. We need to be the men of Tekoa. We need to be in it, at it, among it, on it until the job is finished. Since I met with your dad the other day and he was talking about the 98% of people that were tithing, I began to think about the Pareto principle. And the Pareto principle is 20% do 80%. And literally I began to pray, Lord, get us past that 20%. God, help us to become that church that we've got so many jobs that we have to start saying, God, what's the next thing that you would have us to do as a group of people? Man, they were concerned. They looked around and said, our brothers are in distress. Our sisters are in distress. We must do whatever it takes to restore the, the honor to God, the dignity to, dignity to our community. We must rescue the perishing. We must care for the dying. We must step into their lives and do whatever it takes to make it happen. Will some of us have to do more work? Yes, we will. Some will work with a great passion. Some are going to be, I'm here, but don't you ask me if I'm having a good time because I'm not having a good time and I'm going to be miserable the whole time I do it and if you'll give me half a chance, I'll make you miserable too. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You clean the room with your kids, right? Yeah. We're going to clean this room and we are going to have fun. But look at verse 20. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, 
zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Zealously. He was like, what was that seven dwarfs? Hi-ho, hi-ho. It's off to work I go. Yeah. Man, they were getting to do some work. And they were getting to do it for the glory and the honor of God. And I believe if you had tried to take that man's shovel, he'd have knocked you out. Because he said, no. You go find your own job. This one's mine. And I'm going to worship God today. Serving him. Yeah. That's what it means. God, show me how to worship you. Show me how to do it with passion. God, show me how to get involved. And you know, side note to that. These people had families. These people had jobs. These people had to make priorities to things. And I'm not telling you to neglect your family. I'm not telling you to neglect your job. But I'm saying there are times that we need to look and say, what is the greater priority of my life? Is it the honor and the glory of God? Or is it for me to be happy? I was in the gym the other day, and I was sitting next to this guy working out, and he wanted to talk, and I didn't want to talk. But he kept on talking, so finally I just listened. And he told me he was getting married, and he said, I've got overtime, he said, because you know what? I work all I can to make all I can so that when I have moments like this, I can spend it all on me. And then he proceeded to tell me how much money he had spent all on him. He had spent $5,000 on this one thing, and he was, um, had spent $100 on a bottle of whiskey. And I said, you know you can go to a convenience store and get some Boone, Boone's Farm for about $2, and it'll do the same thing. And you can give me $98 for the church. And then he said, are you a preacher? And I said, yes. And I want that $98. But listen, you are not that. You do not do all you do so that everything you do can be all about you. Jesus said, by example, it's about you, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I gave all that I have. I gave up the splendor of heaven so that I could work, come down here and redeem your lost behind. Because without me, you're going to hell. And he said, I want you to be an ambassador for me. In other words, as I did, I want you to go do. That's what he's teaching us. Working with a passion. Not just getting by, but being completely prepared and ready to work. But look at this. This is amazing. You say, well, pastor, that church takes me away from my family. Ooh, watch it. In verse 3, chapter 3. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. What that simply means is this. Daddy got up and said, boys, we're headed to the wall today. And side by side, we're going to work. We're going to do this together. And I am the spiritual leader of this house. It's what God called me to be. And I'm going to show you how to worship God with your hands. Man, when we have a day of work around here, don't leave your kids at home. 
You may do half as much work and accomplish twice as much good. Because your son, your daughter, saw you dedicating time and energy and effort to the glory and the purpose and the passion of God. You say, well, my kids won't get up. If you pick that mattress up and you dump it and they fall on the floor, they will wake up. If you pour a pot of water on their head, they will wake up and your mattress will dry. Yes. And they may not be happy. But my mama taught me life was not all about your happiness. It's about what's right. Because look at verse 12. And Shalem, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half of district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Go girls. That's what I'm saying. Them girls put their little pink tool bag on and they were ready to go. They were getting after it. I mean, you can't you just see them? It's like, hand me that rock. Oh, I broke a nail. But they didn't stop. They rebuilt the wall. One of the interesting things that I am hearing, in fact, Russell, I sent you a text to remind me for us to talk about it. And it's this. My child finished fifth grade. And now they come into big church and they're bored because we're not entertaining them. I get that. I'm not as cool as Miss Autry. I understand. I understand that. But when you teach them that church is about more than 45 minutes on Sunday morning, maybe they won't be bored. I mean, if the sum total of going to church is sitting still and listening to some ball-headed old man talking, I would be bored too because I didn't want to go. In fact, my grandma said that God's going to let you be a preacher because you can't sit still and be quiet in church. (laughs) But when you teach them that the worship and the work of God is a lifestyle, It's a way of life. Man, how awesome is that? And they come to the fall festival and they say, Hey, you see that piece of pine straw right there? I put that down. Or that person walks down the aisle because as a family you went to their house and told them that you would love to have them be a part of their worship service and that's it. they're sitting there with expectation hey mama, hey daddy that family that we went and visited they joined the church they gave their life to Christ oh my goodness which by the way our children are singing next Sunday is that correct? We're going to baptize four children next Sunday. Yeah. They're going to sing for us. They're going to help us to understand. You know what's really cool about those kids? They don't just say, I want to know Jesus as my Savior. But 
they go through a five-week, Miss Linda, four-week, five-week, six weeks. No, nine weeks. It says, now that I'm a Christian, what does it mean to be a follower of God? Ta families tackle the work as a mission project. You say, when's our next mission trip? Next, the next Sunday, the next day, right? The next Sunday, the next Wednesday. We have a mission trip all the time. True story. Davis was home for the weekend. And when Davis is home for the weekend, he likes to eat at Buckner's. So, that's where we went. And we sat down. And they sit you with people you don't know. I'm okay with that most of the time. But yesterday, they started walking us towards this table. And you knew that the future star of Grumpy, Man, Grumpy Old Man 3 was at that table. <laughs> and he was by himself. And I wanted to turn to the lady and say, can you put me somewhere else? And Davis caught my eyes and he kicked me. <laughs> he did truth. He kicked me. Because he knew what I was fixing to do. I was like, I don't want to sit with him. And then, then he wants to talk. I'm like, I don't like the way you look. And I don't want to talk to you. So if you'll just let me eat my chicken and you'll sit over there, I'll be happy. <laughs> then he said, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and I told him I was a preacher. And he started laughing out loud <laughs> in my face. And with all the sanctity I had in me, and I said, and when I say the blessing, I'm going to make you join us, and I'm going to pray for an hour. <laughs> it didn't faze him. He kept on laughing. And then every ounce of smart aleck in me said, and what do you do for a living? Because I was going to laugh in his face. I'm being really honest with y'all right now. And he said, before I tell you what I did, can I tell you about that my wife just died? Oh, my goodness. I'm like, all right, God, that ain't funny. Because <laughs> here I am being the north end of something walking south. And this God has got a divine appointment with a grumpy old man. And we got to talk about faith and God and his wife's salvation. And that he hoped he would get to be with her in eternity. And a whole conversation about the gospel. I truly left there so grateful. That God had arranged that. The man gave me his address and said. Can we finish this talk? And in my head I was going. We can but I still don't like you.
family's mission project. I was going to move. I didn't want to sit there. God used the sun. We're better together, Mount Zion. We are better together. We are better together when we're working side by side, hand in hand, with our families, with our kids, teaching them that church isn't about being entertained, but teaching us that teaching them that church is about serving God. Sacrificing for others so that they can know. Yeah. Sons and daughters working together. Where do we begin? We begin at the beginning. We begin with knowing that we know that we have trusted Christ as our Savior. And then once we have settled the issue of salvation... That it is Christ alone and faith in Him alone that allows us to have a personal relationship with, with God. Then we begin to, the scripture says, that we begin daily to consecrate. That means to set ourselves apart. God, what is your glory and your honor and your purpose for me today? God, I'm available. I'm here. It's the process of sanctification. Set apart. One time the scripture says... To take up your cross daily and follow him. That literally means, God, I'm going to die to my wants, my needs, my desires, my, my thoughts today. I'm going to die to those so that I can be alive to you and your purpose for me. And then, while I can't give you specific chapter and verse, but I can give you many illustrations it's once we accept the person of Christ as the payment for our sins. And once we consecrate ourselves to the glory and the honor and the worship of God. Then it would be the principle of tenacity. Taking the job to completion. Being dependable. Being reliable. Being committed. God's going to call some of us to a daily, weekly task in serving Him in the church. Some of us are going to have seasonal, situational times that because of life and work that we can't be there all the time. But whatever's the commitment and whatever's the place and the call that God places on your life, let's get in formation. Let's fly together. And begin to watch the glory and the honor of God take us to places that we've only dreamed that we could become as a people of Mount Zion. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more or to contribute to online giving, please visit www.mzbc.org. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear more, simply click on the Sermons tab or subscribe to the Simple Truth Podcast through iTunes. Thank you for supporting Mount Zion, where you are welcome, wanted, and needed.